Well, it's been about 10 years ago now. I was brand new on the staff at Edmonds First Baptist Church in Edmond, Oklahoma, which is a suburb on the north side there of the OKC Metro. And I was doing my normal Sunday morning thing. I got to work early as I did then. I, I was, among other things, the broadcast director. And so I would get there and get all the equipment working and, um, and uh, get the cameras all set up and so forth. And my, some of my coworkers there at the church were talking about football, college football, which is kind of like a religion in Oklahoma um, to a certain extent, especially as it relates to OU and OSU, and you certainly need to know which side of uh, the you know, stadium to sit on. You need to know if you're in Oklahoma, whether you root for OU or OSU, doesn't matter where you went to college, you have to side with one or the other. Um, and so I heard, you know, my boss and a couple other people talking about OSU, which was odd because they were OU fans. Usually it's Sunday, you know, it's right after game day, everybody played on Saturday, usually they would be talking about OU. It's really strange to hear them talking about Mike Gundy and OSU. And uh, so I went and I asked what it was about. And they said, you didn't see the press conference? Well, and, and of course I didn't. I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, you probably know my, my dad and my brothers are way into football. That's kind of their thing. But I don't know. Whatever the genetic legacy that passes the football gene through, uh, I missed. Somehow God made a mistake as far as that was concerned. And so I just, I don't, I'm not into it. I never have been able to. I've tried. I really have tried. But I can't get into college football and NFL. And for those of you who are now extremely disappointed in me, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, but no, I didn't watch the press conference, and, and, uh, and so I said, no, I didn't see it. And they said, well, you're going to see it now, and they brought me over to a computer and pulled up YouTube, pulled up press conference with Mike Gundy, and, uh, and I started watching it, and I could tell, I mean, I, I wouldn't have known Mike Gundy from anybody, but I could tell just from his body language that he was not having a good day. I mean, just walking in, the way that he started talking, I could tell. When, he walked in, he said, I'm not going to talk about football today. That was right after a game. You kind of expect a college football coach is going to talk about the game. He said, I'm not going to talk about football. And he pulls, he pulls out a newspaper and he holds it up and he says, I'm going to talk about this article right here in this newspaper. This is an Oklahoman. And uh, he said, this article is garbage. And he said, the editor that let this article come out is garbage. And he starts just going nuts. I mean, you know, I mean, he, he's just sort of, it's what you've, if you've ever seen somebody just go on a yelling rant where they just, let it all out, and you think, man, they're going to really wish they'd said that a little differently later. That's what I'm thinking as I'm hearing them. Because, I mean, the thing about it was, what had happened was there was a reporter, an editorial reporter at the Oklahoman who had written a, po a, a, a newspaper article about one of his football players. And she had really taken some sort of low shots at this player and said some things that might or might not necessarily be true. She, she, it was an editorial. She, she published some opinions, and they weren't very nice opinions, I suppose, and and uh, Gundy just did not like that at all, and especially because this is a college athlete. This isn't an NFL uh, athlete, and, and he really felt like it was over the line. So defending his athlete and going out there and saying that, hey, we need to be careful with what we put on, you know, huge front page editorial ads, or not ads, but editorial articles about college athletes. I mean, that was good, that was good stuff. It was, it was a good point to make, and, and, and I think his players appreciated that he was backing them up. The problem was he overshot. I mean, the way that he presented it was way over the top. And I'm listening to him go on this rant, and at one point, you know, towards the end, he says, listen, if you want to write something, write about me. I'm a man. I'm 40. And as soon as I heard that, I thought, oh dear, 
he's never going to live that down for the rest of his life. And he hasn't. I mean, the thing about it is, I think there are a ton of people who respect Mike Gundy for backing his athletes, but for the rest of his life, he's not going to be able to go anywhere without somebody tapping him on the shoulder and going, hey, Mike, I'm a man, I'm 40. And I got a phone call from a friend of mine about a week after it happened, and uh, I was in the automotive industry before I went into the ministry. I was on the service side, the um, uh, the repair side of things, and I had a friend who was a, uh, and I was on uh, worked with Hondas, and uh, I had a friend at a different Honda dealership who called me and said, "Have you seen our new commercial?" And I said, "No," and uh, he said, "I'm sending you the link." So I clicked on it, and their normal person who did their commercials came in with a newspaper with an ad from a competitive Honda uh, dealership, and he said, "This ad is garbage. Buy your car from me. I'm a man. I'm 40." Right. <laughs> Anyhow, that, getting back to my story, I'm watching, this, I'm watching this YouTube video, which by the way, the video of Mike Gundy's rant was that day one of the most watched videos on YouTube in the planet. There's people in China watching Mike Gundy going, I'm a man, I'm 40. They don't even know what he's saying, it's just funny, you know? So... Anyhow, I'm standing there watching this video, and at EFBC, we actually had a few people there who were news personalities. I mean, they were media, media types, media personalities, and because I was the broadcast director, I usually knew those people and would kind of hang out with them sometimes, and uh, so there were a couple of those individuals around as I'm watching this video, and one of them says to me, uh, uh, they say, what he needs is a celebrity coach. I'd never heard of such a thing. Do these exist? What's a celebrity coach? I did what you do anytime you have some you know, deep academic research that you need to do and make sure that the answers are completely verified. I got on Google and I searched for what is a celebrity coach. you know, And I found out these are people that if you're in the public eye, if you're a celebrity, you can go and sign up to work with one of these people and they will teach you what to say and what not to say and how to generally not look stupid um, in ways that you will you know, later on regret. Basically, they want to make you look good. And I remembered that the one that I happened to Google, I have no idea who this was specifically now that I think back about it, but the one that I found on Google had the slogan, and it was, we will help you look brilliant when the stakes are high and there's no script. I thought, well, that's pretty cool. When the stakes are high and there's no script. And I thought, that's really awesome for celebrities. What about the rest of us? Because that's like the story of our lives, right? I mean, isn't that like it is every time we open our mouth to communicate? The stakes are high and there's no script. I mean, even in everyday, normal, just run-of-the-mill interactions in our life. I mean, I'll give you an example. So husbands, your wife and you are going to go out for a date, you're going to go to dinner, you're going to go see a movie, you're going to hang out, you know, which you should do. You should go on dates if you're married, right? Um, but you're going to do this, and, and she puts on a, a lovely new outfit that she's, that she's got, and she puts the, the hair and the makeup and all that stuff, and she comes in and she asks you, how do I look? Well, the stakes are high, <laughs> and there's no script, which is, which is where you've got to be careful, because you have to understand, ladies, this might help. In a, in a guy's world, the way that we evaluate how we look is kind of different than the way ladies evaluate how you look. I mean, you watch two ladies in a store, the ladies go shopping together, and they try on outfits, and the lady comes out and asks the other ladies, how do I look? And everybody says, oh, you look wonderful, you look fantastic, it's the greatest outfit I've ever seen in my entire life. You know? And then you watch two guys 
who go shopping. I take my brother, one of my buddies out to go shopping with me. I go try on a suit. You know, I remember this from college, right? And my, you know, my roommates and I, we'd, we'd, we'd go off campus together because there was only one car between all of us. We'd go off campus to go shopping and, and uh, you know, you try on a, a suit or whatever. And I'd walk out and there my roommates would be and I'd say to my roommates, I'd say, so how do I look? And, and seriously, all three guys, they, they cross their arms. This is what guys do. They cross their arms, look back at me and go, hmm, yeah, it looks pretty good, right? Now, what they meant was buy the suit. It looks good, right? looks good on you. Husbands, if your wife comes and asks you how she looks and you go, hmm, yeah, it, it looks good, right? I'll wager you're never going to see that outfit again. <laughs> right? So you know, husbands, that you've got to find a way to actually communicate what you mean. I'm, if I mean that I like the outfit, I've got to communi- communicate it in a way where she'll hear that. She'll hear that I like the outfit and that I think it's good. So somehow you find a way to get it up through your throat and into your mouth and out into the air in a way that will make sense. You say, you look stunning, you look fantastic, you look fabulous, and you think, I did it, I communicated what I meant to say, which was, it's a great outfit, you should wear it. Ten minutes later, she comes back in the room. This time she has a different outfit on. And she says, is this one better or worse than the other one? Well, the stakes are high, and there's no script. Because if you say, yes, this one is better, then she's going to say, well, what was wrong with the other one? And if you say, no, the first one is better, she's going to say, I knew you were going to say that. The other, out- the other outfit's better. I'm never going to wear this one ever again, right? I'm just telling you, this is life. Life is this way. The stakes are high. And, and, and ladies, you know that communicating with us is no picnic either, and I'm going to tell you a story about that in a few minutes. My poor wife, bless her heart, what she has to put up with. Anyway, um, but the stakes are high, and there's no script. We don't get celebrity coaches, but I think we get something better, because this idea of King of Talk, the whole series has been about what if we allow Jesus to coach us up on how to communicate? Because Jesus, the Bible says Jesus talked like nobody else had ever talked. So what if we dispense with the idea of the celebrity coach? What if we let Jesus coach us? Because in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus said, let me teach you. For the greatest words in the Bible, Jesus said, I want to be your coach. I want to teach you. And here's what I can guarantee you, what I found by, from studying this this week. There are three things that you can do. They're right from the Bible, right from Scripture. Three things that you can do that will make you be brilliant when there's no script and the stakes are high. I promise, it works. And here's what's really cool. These are three things that you do before you ever say a word. Three things that you do before you ever start talking, right? So this is, this is awesome, and I don't want to spend any more time introduction, on, on the introduction. I want to get right into it. If you're a note taker, I'll give you these three things. This would be a good day for note taking. But here's the first one. Here's the first thing that you need to do. If you want to be brilliant when there's no script, when the stakes are high, the first thing you need to do is don't focus on words. Focus on attitude, Now, this is the first thing that will separate you from 99% of the people who are around you. 99% of the people who are around you will be focused on what they say and how they say it, right? How many of us have heard people say, it's not what you say, it's... Right, next time somebody tells you that, go, eh, wrong, it's both. (laughs) It is both what you say and how you say it, and the only way to deal with both at the same time is to deal with the attitude that generates it, and I can prove it from the scripture. The Bible says in the book of Matthew, um, and this is in chapter 12 and verse 34, that the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks 
what the heart is full of. Now, we know that in the Bible, we're not talking here, when we talk about heart, we're not talking about the pump in your chest that's circulating blood through your body. We're talking about the thoughts and emotions that you have and the way they interact to point you in a certain direction in life. We call that attitude, right? We tell our kids it's important to have a good attitude. What are we saying? We're saying that the direction that you're pointed in life is a result of your thoughts and your emotions and what you do with them. And what God is saying is if you really want to communicate brilliantly, don't worry about the words. Worry about the attitude that's generating what you say and how you say it. So I want to just kind of take us through a story that Jesus told that kind of illustrates this. This is in Luke chapter 15. It's a story that's really familiar with most of us. We call it the story of the prodigal son. If you're not familiar with it, I'll get you caught up really quickly. Basically what you have is you have a rich um, dad who has a farm and he is sort of in the process, his sons are adults now, he's sort of in the process of uh, having his sons come up and, and, and work within the farm and sort of take over. And... Both sons will get an inheritance when the dad dies. The older son will get two-thirds. The younger son will get one-third. It was the way it worked back then. And so the older son is planning on taking his inheritance, continuing on working in the, working the farm, take it to the next level, um, you know, continue that family legacy. The younger son has absolutely no interest at all in continuing what his dad started. He just wants to take the money and go have a good time. And he's waiting for his dad to die, but it's just not happening fast enough for him. So he goes and he says to his dad, listen, I've been waiting for you to kick the bucket and you're just not dying fast enough for me. I would really prefer my inheritance now. Go ahead and cut me a check and then I can go ahead and take off and do what I want to do while I'm still young and can have fun doing it. Now, this is a, a thing for another day. There's so many awesome lessons in the story of the prodigal son that I mean, we could do a whole series on, on this story. But just so you know, one of the things that this story teaches us is that you cannot bar the door to keep somebody from leaving a relationship if they want to. So the father doesn't say, no, I'm not going to let you leave. I'm not dead yet. You better wait until I die. Then you can get your inheritance. He already recognizes the son may physically be home, but he's already emotionally left home. And so he writes the son the check and lets him go. Bible says the, the kid goes off to a faraway country, has a lot of fancy, expensive parties, has a lot of friends, does a lot of stupid stuff. The Bible says he spent his, his money on what, what Jesus called riotous living. Basically, it was one crazy party after another, but when the money ran out, which it always will, all of his friends were gone, there was nobody there to do anything for him, and he had no home and no family, and so he was destitute. So the Bible says he starts going around looking for a job. And the only job that he could find was somebody was willing to hire him as a joke. I mean, it, there was a big famine going on. There was no food to go around. But he, he found a guy who would at least let him feed this guy's pigs. And it was like a, a, a joke for this person who hired him, a joke they could tell at dinner parties. Hey, check out the Jewish kid that I've got feeding the pigs. It was not a legitimate job. It was just a way to poke fun at him. And the Bible says that it, there came a point where the prodigal son was so hungry that as he was feeding the pigs the slop, he wished he could eat the slop he was feeding the pigs. And the Bible says it was right about this time that he came to his senses. That's a quote from the Bible. He came to his senses, which, by the way, I told you there's all these great lessons in the story of the prodigal son that we don't have time to go into today. But I just think it, it does bear saying that when a person is rebellious, you cannot come to their senses for them. The prodigal son had to come to his own senses. 
And one day he woke up and recognized, this is not where I want to be. And he said, you know what? Back home, my father's hired servants had a, a, a clean, dry bed to sleep in at night, and they had food to eat. He said, even if I went home and was just a, 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 a butler, even if I went home and was just somebody who worked out in the fields, I'd still have a place to sleep and, a, and, and food to eat. So he decides to go home and tell his dad, hey, dad, I know I'm not worthy to be your son anymore because I didn't, you know, I totally just broke off from the family. But if you would just hire me and let me work for you, then that would be a a really big blessing. So he heads home, and he's getting ready to make this speech, and this is where we pick up in Luke chapter 15, verse 20. The Bible says, he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled. Now, by the way, what did we say? We said the, the mouth speaks what our attitudes are full of. It said he was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, so the son's going to start his speech. He's been practicing. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the dad interrupts him. The father says, uh, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now here's what you should know about brilliant communicators. Almost always what a brilliant communicator does or says in a tense moment seems counterintuitive. It's not what you would, you would necessarily think would be a gut reaction to what they're in the middle of, right? Because the father has been wounded by this kid. This kid has really done some messed up things. A kid shows up, and you would expect what would be intuitive, what we would think would happen is that the father might give the guy a job, might not give the guy a job, but this is about the time that the father lets him have it and lets him understand how hurtful his actions have been and really sort of keeps him at arm's length. That would make sense. That would be intuitive. But brilliant communicators often do things that are counterintuitive in the moment, but in the long run, it's brilliant. And we can get some distance. We can look back at that and go, wow, how awesome is that? And we know the story. Jesus told this story as, as a way of illustrating what it's like, what God the Father is like toward us when we come home. So we look at the Father and we say, what an amazing example of forgiveness. What an amazing example of grace. What an amazing example of recognizing the human value of, of this person more than what, what he's done wrong. So it looks brilliant. But those of us who struggle sometimes to communicate well, what's interesting about us is we typically do the intuitive thing in the moment. We typically do what, what comes, what the gut feeling, that first blush reaction. That's exactly what happened with the older brother, right? Because the Bible says the older son was in the field. He was working. He was doing his regular thing. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry. That's the intuitive thing. This isn't fair. He's been working this whole time for his dad. His brother's been a total jerk. And now all of a sudden everybody's happy because he came back. It's not fair. The intuitive thing is to get angry, and that's what he does. So he wouldn't go in. He's not going to go party with everybody else. He's not going to celebrate. He has no interest in going throwing his arms around his brother and saying, glad you're home, brother. He's so ticked off, he won't even go inside. So his father comes out and pleads with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and you never disobeyed, and, and I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could have a party with my friends. But when this son of yours, you won't even call him his brother. There's no human connection there. No, there's nothing tying the two of them. He, he has no feeling for his brother. He says, the son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You killed the fattened calf for him. 
My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. One story, two talkers. One does the intuitive thing. The other does something very counterintuitive. The one who does the intuitive thing, later on we look at him and we go, what, what a hard-hearted, unfeeling, unforgiving person. We look, at the person, we look at the father who did something that's totally counterintuitive and we go, what a brilliant, forgiving, gracious, relational person. See, that's the thing about being a brilliant communicator is often we have to do the counterintuitive thing. What, what is it that, that takes a person from doing what comes naturally in that situation, doing somebody that, for some, for, to somebody that does the right thing? Well, here's what, I, here's what I want to encourage you to think about. When our attitude is pointed in the wrong direction in a tense conversation, what is going to come out of our mouth is almost always going to be an attempt to get what is fair. It's happened to me this week. I told you I was going to tell you what it's like to be married to me and what my poor wife Wendy has to put up with. I am in a, uh, I was, I was in, this last week I was in a writing project um, that uh, involves several people in different parts of the country. We all had our assignments. We all had what we needed to do to participate in the project. And I felt that I had really done a very diligent job doing my part. I felt like I had really uh, done the work. Even though I'm very busy, I have a lot on my plate. I had, I had set aside the time. I had been disciplined. I had, I, I had contributed to the group, what the group should expect from me. But as the deadline approached, I really felt as though there were other members of the group, and one in particular, that had not contributed what they should and had let the group down and had not... Um, you know, brought to the group what, what I brought to the group. And I started thinking that maybe God was calling me to write an email. <laughs> that would express these thoughts to this person. And, and so I sat down to the, to the, to the computer and I, and I started to write an email and I started to just explain um, what I had done right in the situation and what they had done wrong. And I thought that was a good way of starting off. And then I gave this person some several alternate things they could have done which would have been much better than what they did because I thought that was productive. And so I sat, you know, I sat back from having written this two-page email. And I thought, I should probably have another pair of eyes on this before I send it. So I call in my lovely wife. And I say, Wendy, darling... Will you come in and read this email and make sure that it act, you know, make sure that this is not over the top. I want to make sure this is, you know, that this is not going to be a bad thing to send this. And there was really only one appropriate answer for my wife to give me, which was, Jonathan, this is brilliant. Um, but she didn't say that. The stakes were high and there was no script, but my wife is really good at this kind of thing. And she said, you know, Jonathan, you're tired. And it's been a long week. And you should really sleep on this before you send it. You know, don't delete it. Don't get rid of it. Just, just sleep on it. And in the morning, if you still feel like it's the right thing to send, then, you know, then send it. So I thought, oh, fine, I'll sleep on it. I told her, I said, I think it's completely accurate. She said, I, I know you think it's accurate. Just, just sleep on it. Fine. So the next morning I woke up, and I went to work, and I did not consult Wendy. And I thought for a little bit, and I said, you know, maybe there's three or four sentences in this two pages that's probably a little over the top. It's true. So I deleted those three sentences, and I pressed send. Now, can I ask you a question? My email 
was an attempt to get what was fair, right? I wanted to get what was fair. I'd contributed to the group. This person had not. I wanted them to understand that. I wanted them to pick up the slack and do what they needed to do. Can I ask you a question? How much do you think it benefited me sending that email and getting it out there? (laughs) Not at all. I got nothing positive from sending that email. All I got was additional tension in the group because I'd created this huge rift all of a sudden, right? See, the thing about it is brilliant communicators are not interested in what is fair because they recognize that fair doesn't fix things. Brilliant communicators are interested in what is best because they understand that what is best is always better than what's fair. The Bible says in Philippians, um, 2, verse 5 through 8. The Bible says we need to have the same attitude that Jesus had. So we, we said that whatever our attitude is full of, that's what comes out of our mouth. The Bible says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. So basically the Bible's saying he wasn't hung up on what's fair and what's not fair. It says instead he gave up his divine privileges and took the position of a slave. That's decidedly unfair. He was born as a human being and appeared in human form, also not fair, and humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. That is the epitome of not fair. When you see the artist's drawings of Jesus Christ on the cross with nails through his hands and through his feet, hanging there between heaven and earth as a fit for neither, spending hours there dying an excruciating death to pay for the things that I've done wrong and the things that you've done wrong, that is the epitome of not fair. But Jesus did it because he believed it was what was best. See, he was interested in a relationship. Anytime we're interested in what's fair, all that does is keep our zone of attention within our own space. As long as I'm focused on what's fair, all I see is me and what I think is right and what I think I need and what I think other people need to do to make me happy. Once I'm concerned with what's best, it opens up my heart to relationship because what's best always involves relationship. And that's what Jesus wants to teach us. Now, you can't do this. You can't reorient your attitude in the direction towards what's best without a secret ingredient that the Bible teaches us we have to have, and it's not one we talk about a lot much anymore. But this ingredient is called compassion. Remember when we read the story, the Bible says that when the father saw the son afar off, his heart was filled with compassion. And we don't use that word very much anymore. These days, you're a lot more likely to hear the word empathy. Right? We talk about, can you empathize with somebody else? And, and what we mean usually when we say, do you have empathy, is can you think about or can you put yourself in someone else's shoes? Can you imagine what it's like to be somewhat, someone else? But the psychology world, which I'm, uh, I love to study, in psychology, we break empathy down into two parts. There's two different kinds of empathy. And psychologists call this cognitive and affective empathy. I call it head empathy and heart empathy. Head empathy is my ability to think about what it must be like to be someone else. I can analyze it, I can, I can think through what is their situation like. But hard empathy is completely different. Hard empathy is my ability to feel some of what somebody else is feeling. And hard empathy is compassion, and it's different. And here's what I mean by that. When we talk about head empathy, how do we think about head empathy? Well, suppose your car insurance company double bills you, right? You get a bill in the mail, and it says that your car insurance company has double debited your bank account, and it's not the first time. And you think, this can't go on, and they need to refund my money back to my bank account. You call them up on the phone, and you say, you've done it again. You've double debited my bank account, and it's not cool, and I want my money back. I want to see it in my bank account within the next 48 hours. I mean, this can't keep happening. And they tell you, we're sorry, but our system doesn't work that way. We can't just credit your bank account back, but we can give you a credit towards your next month's bill. And you say, it's not good enough. This is so frustrating. And the person on the other end of the line goes, Mr. Hoover, I'm I'm, I'm sure this is very upsetting for you. 
Well, thanks. That makes everything better. I mean, it's like they're reading from a script. Have you, have you had this? It's like you feel like you're reading, they're reading from a card. This must be a very difficult circumstance for you. I can see that this is very frustrating for you. Well, that's great, but we know that it's not going to do anything. Nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to happen because they can think about what it feels like to be us, but they certainly don't feel any of what it's like to be us. See, we know there's a difference. We get that if they felt some of what we feel, they would be motivated to do something about it. And so when Jesus talks about our need to have compassion, he's saying it's, it's not just about can I think about what it's like to be another person, it's can I, can, can I engage what they're going through, can I feel it. When I was in college, um, I made spending money by tuning pianos. And uh, so I used to know a lot about piano technology these days, I, I don't know very much about it, but uh, I've forgotten most of what I knew. But if you play a note on the piano, this much I remember, if you play a note on the piano, the strings that are assigned to that note will vibrate and they'll make noise, obviously. But not only will those strings vibrate, all the rest of the strings that are in that piano will vibrate along too. We call that sympathetic resonance. The rest of the strings are vibrating, not at the same intensity, uh, but the rest of the strings are vibrating because those strings are vibrating. And this is what compassion is. Compassion is sympathetic resonance. Our heart engages because of what somebody else's heart is going through. And that's what Jesus said is the, the way that we orient our attitude. Jesus was full of compassion. This is just a rapid fire um, bunch of verses that proves this. In Matthew 9.36, the Bible says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless. Matthew 14.14, 14, when Jesus got off the boat, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Mark 1.40, a man with leprosy came and kneeled, kneeled in front of Jesus and begged to be healed. If you're willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Moved with compassion. So what do we say? We say, my heart goes out to you. So when the Bible says that when Jesus saw this man who was struggling with this illness, his heart was moved with compassion. It's the, way of, the Bible's way of saying his heart went out to that person. That's compassion. Luke chapter 7, verse 12, a funeral, process, a funeral procession was coming uh, out as he approached the village gate. And the young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. And when the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. It's huge. And without it, we're not ready to orient our attitude away from what is fair to what is best. But to be fair, and by the way, I, I, I forgot to tell you this. So let me tell you this really quickly. The three things I'm going to give you today, they build on each other. So you can't do the second thing if you don't do the first thing. You can't do the third thing if you don't do the second thing. So these are s steps, right? So I want to just acknowledge right now that to turn our attitude around, to make an attitude adjustment is not an easy thing. So you may be listening to me talk and think, you know, Jonathan, swell that you're saying we need to recalibrate our attitude, but that's easier said than done, and I feel that. Attitudes tend to be uh, a, a driving force, and it's huge. It reminds me of um, when my wife and I have been on one cruise since we've been married. I think it was our 10th anniversary we went on a, on a cruise, and we, the, there was a, a little small fishing boat off to the side and there was nobody in it and the cruise, the, the captain of the, of the boat was worried that maybe somebody had been hurt or something and so he decided to turn the cruise ship around and go check on the boat. Have you ever been in a big boat that they had to turn around? It took forever. It was like 45 minutes to get the boat turned around and going in a different direction. To me, sometimes that feels like what it's like trying to get my attitude to change. It's like, man, my attitude is a massive ship and it's going in this direction. If I gotta turn it around, it's gonna take a lot of work and a lot of time. Here's what I wanna tell you. The second thing that I'm gonna give you 
is, and this is, this is from the Bible, but the second thing that I'm going to give you is the secret to turning your attitude around fast and to doing it effectively so that you can care about what's best uh, and not what's fair. Now, I'm going to give you the heading, because some of you are taking notes. I'm going to give you the heading for the second point, but I'm going to need a few minutes to explain it, so bear with me. But here's the second thing that you can do. We said the first thing that you can do is focus on attitude. Don't focus on the words. The second thing that you can do is if you can't buy it, at least try it on. If you can't buy it, at least Try it on. Now, why do we struggle to communicate? And I'm, I'll explain what, I, what that point means in just a second. Why do we struggle to communicate? Do you know communication is the number one reason people come in for couples counseling? Right? And as a matter of fact, I just did the analysis. I did a statistical analysis of, of, of intake information from couples that I've, I've met over the, uh, that have come in to see me over the past seven years, and it holds true for our population as well. The number one people come in for, help, for a couple's help at New Spring is communication. So why do we struggle to communicate? Well, because people are different and they look at things differently, and also, People are frequently wrong. That second one is the big one, right? Because it is really complex to communicate with somebody that we think is in the wrong, right? We end up in these adult arguments that are kind of like the adult version of the two five-year-olds in the backseat of the car going, yeah, hun, uh, yeah, hun, uh, yeah, hun, uh, right? But we're adults, and so we go, yes, it is. No, it's not, and I can tell you why. Nope, 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 yes, it is. And I, we get into this thing where we're going at each other, right? And we think somehow that if we talk loud enough and we say it enough times that eventually the other person is going to go, oh, you know what? You are right. It's not going to happen, right? So what do we do when we're communicating with somebody who sees the world differently than we do or somebody that we think is in the wrong? They're approaching life from the wrong direction. They're doing things the wrong way and they're trying to tell me something that's wrong. Maybe they're trying to tell me something about me that I know is wrong. How do I have compassion then? Well, let's go back to the whole idea of buying a suit. I haven't bought a suit in a long time. These are my church clothes. But let's say I'm going to buy, buy a suit, right? Um, I'll look through the... The, the rack and see which ones I feel like are the right fabric and the right color that I'm looking for. And then I'll take a couple of them off the rack and I'll take them to the dressing room and I will try them on. When I try them on, I'm going to see how does it fit? How does the, what's the cut like? Is the drape right for me? Do I like the way it looks? Do I like the way it feels? And then I'm going to make a decision whether or not I'm going to buy that garment. If I decide I don't want any of the garments that I tried on, I can go out of that dressing room and give those suits back to the salesman and leave the store. No policeman's going to come arrest me. Nobody's coming after me. This is the way the world works. You can try it on and see whether you like it or not before you buy it. And see, here's the problem in communication, and this is all over the place. It's in marriage, but it's everywhere else too. We live in a world with people who act like they have to buy something in order to try it on. It's like I can't feel what it's like to look at the world through your lens. I can't, I can't feel any of what it would be like to think the way that you're thinking or to see things the way that you're thinking if I can't agree with it. If I can't agree with it, then I can't connect with it. I, I, I can't have compassion toward it because I, I, I can't buy it. And here's what the Bible is telling us, that when we're dealing with imperfect people, which by the way is what you've got to work with, Right? Everybody around you. If you're, if, you know, if, if you're married today, the pool of people that you had to choose from when you decided to get married was imperfect people. And I've got news for you, the pool they had to choose from was imperfect people. Right. So when you're dealing with imperfect people who are going to see the world differently than you do and who aren't going to agree with you on everything else, the Bible's telling us maybe you can't buy what it is that they bring to you, but you can try it on. You can see what would it be like if I was seeing the world through their eyes? Well, it changes everything. Years ago, I changed my style of couples work. And part of that's just because couples work is complex. It's like 3D chess. There's a lot of stuff 
going on there, you know? And um, so you do, you know, I've been doing couples coaching now for about seven years. And a couple years ago, I recognized some of the things that I really needed to improve or to work with and what I was doing. One of those is uh, I would always sit, when I do couples coaching, I'd sit in this, this um, rocking swivel chair that I have in my office. I love that rocking swivel chair. Um, and, and the couple would sit across from me on a love seat, both of them looking right back at me. And I got to thinking, you know, that sort of sends the impression that the most important conversation happening in the room is between me and them. And that's not the most important conversation. What's ha- mo- most important is what's happening between the two of them. So I gave up my swivel chair, which was a big deal. Now I sit in the love seat. I got another swivel chair, and I pointed those two chairs at each other so that when couples come in and they work with me, they're more pointed at each other than they're pointed at me. And I'm helping them do these conversations with each other because I've learned if I help them communicate with each other, it's a lot more helpful than if I just sit there and talk to them about how to communicate with each other. So this is something that happens relatively frequently in my office. Husband and wife are talking and and we kind of go deep and we're starting to really get to some of the main stuff. And she says to him, you know, I just feel like you've never been there for me and you're never going to be there for me and I've never been good enough for you and I feel very alone in this relationship. Do you know what he does? Right on, the end, right, right on the end of what she just said, he comes in and he says, but I've always been there for you and I'm always gonna be there for you and you are good enough for me and I do love you and do you know what happens the whole time he's saying all of that? She's going, her spirit's just deflating because she's going, he can't see what it's like to be me. He doesn't get what it's like to feel what I feel. So what I'll do is I'll say, hey, 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 hang on just a second. I, hear, I heard everything you just said. I heard that you feel like you've always been there. I heard that you always want to be there. I got, got all of that. Let's take that and let's, let's set it aside for a minute. We'll come back to it. And I, I say to him, I say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen. I want you to remember everything she just said. She just said she feels lonely. She doesn't feel good enough. She feels like you've never been there for her, like you're not going to be there for her in the future. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to just look back into her eyes and I want you to tell her, if I felt the way you just told me that you feel and then finish the sentence. Well, I have a lot of counselor friends who tell me, you can't do that with guys. Guys aren't emotional, and guys aren't abstract, and it just doesn't work. Baloney. I watch guys do this brilliantly all the time. He'll look back at her and he'll say, you know what, if I felt the way that you said you feel, I think it'd be hard to get up in the morning. I think I'd have a hard time just feeling comfortable in my own skin. I think I'd feel kind of scared and hurt. And then I'll look at her and I'll say, what was it like for you to hear him say that just now? And this has happened so many times. I mean, what he'll say is he describes what, what he would feel if he was in that. That'll vary. I mean, it'll be all kinds of different things that he'll come up with. But I've heard so many ladies say this over and over and over again, the same thing, that it, it can't be coincidence. A lady will say, it was like he just heard me for the first time. It was like he's never gotten me before, but he just now got it. I'm just telling you, being brilliant It involves trying on what we can't buy. Maybe I can't agree that that the world is a a certain way. Maybe I can't agree that what somebody thinks about me is right or something that the person says that I said or did. Maybe I'd say I could prove that that I didn't say or do that. But the point is, can I connect with what that person is feeling? That's the exercise that turns us away from what is looking for what is fair to looking for what is best. Man, I'm running out of time. Let me, let me give you the third thing and, and we'll, we'll shut this down. So on that second thing I was talking about, trying it on, what's the purpose of that? Is that so that we can analyze the difference of opinion and, and figure out who's right? Is it so that we can compromise and find some common middle ground? What's the point? It's none of those things. The point of trying on the other person's experience is to identify the need. 
See, people communicate with us because they have needs. And when we try on what they've got going on in their world and what their life is like, right, then we identify that need. So the third thing that we need to do is to move toward the need. Listen, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are people who move away from needs when they see them, and there are people who move toward needs. And that's what makes the biggest difference in terms of whether a person makes an impact in this world. I had a guy tell me recently, man, I'm running out of time. I had a guy tell me recently, um, I, I, I bumped into him in the hallway. I'd worked with him and his precious wife a couple years ago, and they were going through some difficulties and hadn't seen him in a while, and, uh, and we'd worked on this idea of compassion and all that. And uh, I bumped into him, I said, so how's it going? And he said, well, it's going good. He said, but I think it's getting a little out of hand. I said, well, what do you, what do you mean it's getting out of hand? He said, well, the other day I found myself standing at the sink doing dishes wearing a pink apron, he said, I thought to myself, this is getting out of hand. He said, you know, but, but you know, he said, I did what you, what you talked about, trying to think about what it was like to be my, he's like, I was thinking about what it was like to be my wife and how she has to do everything around here and what's the, how overwhelmed I would feel if I was in her shoes and, and how just like totally frazzled I would feel. And he said, the next thing I know, I'm standing at the sink, I'm doing dishes, I'm wearing a pink apron, it's kind of getting out of hand. And he started giving me all these other examples of things that had happened in his life. You know, he'd, he'd, he'd given money to a family that was struggling, but he said, this has never been something that I've done. You know, he's like, my wife wondered what was going on because, you know, it was a couple in our small group going through a difficult time, and I just wrote them a check and said, I, I hope this would help. And she's, you know, my wife's going, you know, who are you? And where's my husband? And, and you know, he's saying, all these things have been happening. And he said, I think I'm going crazy. And I said, we should all be so crazy that God would get a hold of our hearts and we would start engaging the needs around us. There's a story, and we don't have the time to go into it, but the story in Luke chapter 10 is that of the, uh, of the Good Samaritan. We know that story, right? man is beaten up on a treacherous road, left for dead. His pastor comes by, right? Sees this guy beaten up and on the side of the road, and instead of moving toward the need, he moves away from it. Then a church staffer, Somebody who works at the church comes by, sees this guy who's, who, who, who goes to this church, doesn't matter, goes on the other side, walks, walks right by. And then here comes a Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews don't get along. They, they, they had a lot of interracial tension within, with, between those two people groups. And yet the Samaritan, as he's walking along, his heart somehow engages with what it's like to be this poor guy on the side of the road, and he moves toward the need. 90% of the story is non-verbal. It happened before anybody said anything, and yet the story of the Good Samaritan is so powerful, people who've never been to church know the story of the Good Samaritan. Moving toward the need is what changes us from just another face in a crowd to somebody who's actually making a difference in this world. The Apostle Paul really, really wrapped this all together in a nice bow for us in 1 Corinthians 13. Because he basically says, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, he's basically saying, if I'm just as brilliant as you could possibly be. Some people kind of get wigged out by what this phrase in this verse means, the tongues of men and of angels. Basically what it means is, he's saying, if I was to be as, 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 as well-polished as Shakespeare and be as brilliant as an angel knowing everything that, that we don't even get to know as human beings. He said, if I, could, if I could be that smart and that polished, but then he says, if I did that and didn't have love, he said it would be like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I mean, have you ever been around a fifth grade class, a fifth grade band class where somebody's sadistic enough to give a fifth grader those big, huge clashing cymbals, right? Just say, crash, crash, crash. You leave there with like 50% of your hearing intact, you know? And here's what Paul's saying. Until there's compassion, when I talk, it's just noise entering the air. 
It's just noise. But he says, once love enters the picture, once compassion enters the picture, then I'm a communicator. I'm not a communicator until there's love. Until then, I'm just, I'm just putting noise in the air. See, I, I started this message by saying that the goal should be, you know, we're, the goal here is to be brilliant when the stakes are high and when there's no script. Can I tell you, I'm, I'm not sure that's a high enough goal. I think we should kick it up a notch. I think our goal should be to be indispensable. I think our goal should be to be so brilliant in the way that we communicate that people want us to, to speak into their lives because when we speak, it, it adds to their experience and doesn't take away. One of my favorite stories, and I'll finish with this. My, growing up as a pastor's kid, I heard lots of sermon stories my dad would tell as I was growing up, but one of my favorites was a story that a pastor told, um, happened in the 50s. Um, this businessman is driving by, driving by this little grocery store, and he sees this little boy sitting in front of the grocery store on a, on, a, on a bench, and the little boy has his head in his hands and looks like he's crying, and at first the head empathy kicks in, right? He drives by and he goes, man, I wonder what's going on with, with the kid. You know, I wonder what's, what's happening. But he didn't think much of it, keeps driving on. But something grabbed him about that. He gets to the end of the block and he thinks, you know, I've got time. I'm going to go double back and, and see what was wrong. So he goes back and parks his car and walks up to the little boy. And he says, son, what's, um, what's the matter? The little boy looks up at him and says, well, my dad gave me $5 to go grocery shopping. And so I came to the store and he said, but it's so cold today. He said, my, my hand got kind of numb and, and the bill slipped out of my hand. And he said, my dad is a hard drinking man and I'm, I'm kind of scared to go home without the groceries. So I didn't know what to do. I just sat here. And the man said, my heart just went out to this kid. And he said, so I, I took him inside the grocery store and we got all the groceries he was supposed to get. And, uh, and he said, I paid for him. I took, took the little boy outside, made sure he was good to go. And I, and I said, son, I hope everything works out okay for you. And he said, the little boy looked back up straight into his eyes and said, Mr., I sure wish you were my daddy. See, when we really engage what it's like to be somebody else, we make ourselves indispensable. People around you are going to go, I wish I had more people like that that were my friends. I wish I got to work with people like that. I wish people in my family were like that. And we become that person that people just want in their lives because they're like, I know that if nobody else gets what it's like to be me, they're going to get it. See, some of you in this room, you would say that your best friend in this world is Jesus Christ. That would be the case for me. Why is Jesus, the Bible says Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Why is Jesus so indispensable? I mean, obviously, he made a pathway to heaven for us. For those of, he, he paid for the, for the things that we've done wrong, but it's bigger than that. If, you're, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you know that it's bigger than that. Jesus is a friend, a personal friend that you're close with, and you feel that closeness. Why is Jesus so indispensable to us? Because if nobody else in this world gets what it's like to be us, he does. And God has called us to imitate him in that way, for us to go out into a world of people that are hurting and going through difficult times and say, if nobody else can get how you feel, even if I don't agree with you, even if I don't see things the same way that you do, I'll be there for you. I can try to understand what it's like to be you. It's powerful. And before you ever say a word, it makes you an amazing communicator, no matter how high the stakes are and no matter how much you are unprepared for the conversation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you love us. Thank you for the fact that you've given us the ability to communicate with love and compassion. I pray that you would energize and empower us to do that in ways that would change our families, change our workplaces, and change the city of Wichita so that people would know that they have somebody who cares about them and somebody who can understand what it's like to be them. 
Father, help us to be an extension, a flesh and blood extension of your love and grace to the people that you've called us to be around. And we'll thank you for uh, the ability to let your love overflow through us and onto their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here with us this week. Next week, we continue on with King of Talk.